Hello listeners, this is Joshua with some bad news, good news. The bad news is round one of this episode was in classic Doctor Who style, inexplicably wiped and recorded over. But the good news is the four rounds we managed to not record over more than make up for it. Yes, this, our 25th regular release, is truly a gigantic lumbering dinosaur of an episode. And who knows, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, our lost first round will be rediscovered in Singapore or Nigeria, or better yet, animated by Ian Levine. Who knows? Until then, please enjoy this rare, highly collectible, four-round version of Get Off My World. Get Off My World! Get Off My I'm Pat. And I'm Joshua. And this is Get Off My World, a Doctor Who podcast brought to you by three men of a certain age. And we're going to take you through five rounds rapid and tell you what's great and maybe somewhat less than great about our favorite show. And uh, for today's episode, we have Minneapolis famous raconteur and tall person... (laughs) Matt Kesson. Hey. hey, Matt. How you doing? Hi, Kelvin. Hi, I'm doing good. Hi, Pat. Hi, everybody. Uh, well, thanks for having me on the show. Oh, of course. Uh, looking forward to it. Absolutely. Uh, today, we'll be talking about uh, well, a bunch of stuff. A bunch of stuff. Should I go ahead and... What, what happens? <laughs> what happens? I've never listened to your show. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you're in good company. <laughs> it's not like the Tonight Show, where it just has this bulletproof format. <laughs> That anyone can just waltz in on. <laughs> well, I think what will happen next mm. is a new round on Get Off My World. This is something we like to call the Mind Probe. No, not the Mind Probe. Yes, yes the, the Mind, mind probe. probe! Matt Kesson, <laughs> prepare to be probed. Ah! All right, I'm prepared. You are our guest today. Who are you and why are you here? <laughs> Hi, uh, yeah, my name's uh, Matt Kesson. I perform under the name Reverend Matt. I have a, uh, an ongoing thing called Reverend Matt's Monster Science. It's online at RevMattsMonsterScience.com, and I perform it at various venues here in the Twin Cities, most particularly the Encyclopedia Show. Um, it is... Basically, me doing lectures about various monster-related topics, only with a whole lot of jokes, because I have spent my entire life uh, learning things about various things that could be uh, qualified as monsters, dinosaurs, and Godzilla, and mythical creatures, and cryptozoology, and all that sort of thing, because that's my thing, and now I'm unemployable, but I get to go and uh, tell people jokes and, uh, about them, and, uh, and, and I enjoyed a very great deal. So, I'm here today specifically because uh, later we'll be doing Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and... Uh, You're a ringer. I'm a ringer, yes. I have a job at the Science Museum of Minnesota where I talk to uh, talk to the kids about the dinosaurs and uh, and it is one of my one of my bailiwicks and so I'm very glad to be here. 
So what is your history with Doctor Who? Okay, well, my history with Doctor Who is is uh, controversial. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I got into Doctor Who about five years ago. Uh, you know, certainly I'm a you know I'm a huge nerd. I've always been a huge nerd, and so um, I you know all my friends were into Doctor Who, and they were evangelical about it to <laughs> varying degrees. And uh, and eventually, one friend of mine told me, Matt, Matt, just go and watch uh, the episode. A good man goes to war, and I'm like, all right, all right, and uh, and I did, and I really enjoyed the living crap out of it, and I still do, you know, having watched a great deal more Doctor Who, um, just you know, just the humor and the adventure and everything. I was just, I was just very, very fond of it, and uh, and that's when the thing happened because the thing is, of course, there's two kinds of human beings in the world. There's people who you know, are indifferent to or perhaps slightly hostile to Doctor Who. And there's people <laughs> who love Doctor Who with everything that makes them human. And uh, very, very rarely anyone in between. And Because, of course, since there's so few people in between, that means that if you travel from one to the other, you do so... Suddenly, you know, there's no middle ground. Um, like you're in a TARDIS. <laughs> exactly. Um, there's no middle ground, and so um, and so that's what happened to me. Was that I watched uh, I, I watched A Good Man Goes to War, and then for the next year or so, I just consumed as much Doctor Who as I possibly could, and I bought books and toys and trading cards and stuff, um, and uh, because I had turned. And since then, actually, I have come to occupy the mythical middle ground. I still very, very much like Doctor Who, but I don't consume it with the all with the all-consuming passion that that most people who are into Doctor Who do. I I certainly like it. I uh, I will watch it when available, but I I do not pursue it. And for that, I can only apologize. <laughs> we so, forgive yeah. you, man. <laughs> This is a safe place. Yeah, thank you. This is not a safe place. <laughs> You're this is a confusing place. <laughs> You're among enemies here. And I know that both Josh and Kelvin have questions for you. Further questions. I see. About you and Doctor Who. I am prepared to answer these questions. Okay, so have you seen every single Doctor? No. Or just the new series Doctor? Neither of those is true. I have, seen, <laughs> I have seen most of the new series Doctors. I have seen... Uh, you know, I, I've seen some. I saw some four way back in the day. I have not seen four since I came to your side. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I've, <laughs> I've seen a good. I've, I've seen a good amount of three. I've seen. Uh, I've seen one of the fives. Warriors of the Deep. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't. I, I somehow guess that would be the one. Well, of yeah. course it's the one because, because I'm going to put that in the con column. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why you're laughing. Um, I can say that I uh, that I saw Warriors of the Deep. Uh, that Kelvin no doubt guessed that I saw Warriors of the Deep because it has the Silurians and the Sea Devils in it, and I'm very into the Silurians and the Sea Devils. But yes, um, I very much like. Three. My favorite of all, and I have obviously seen only a few of the companions, but my favorite of all of the companions I've seen, new or old, is Liz Shaw. Oh, he's ha he's got one answer right. So I know. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I, should I explain why I like Liz Shaw? That, no, that, because that you're an X-Files fan as well. We just, uh, yep, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> well, okay. Like, like I guess we can investigate this from uh, sort of negatively. Like, like what, what what is the one Doctor Who thing you've seen? so far that you just didn't like, weren't on board with? Uh, what was the one with Eleven and Amy Pond with the dolls? 
Mark Gatiss one, the Night Terrors? Yeah. Oh, are we are we Night Terrors people around here? I, I, I did not care for Night Terrors. Yeah. No, I, I can't even recall one thing even, about <laughs> it. Yeah, I, I'm with Kelvin. I don't remember what this one is. Yeah. Mar Mark Gatiss in general is not our favorite writer. Yeah, and um, it's, uh, I don't know, I don't really, I mean, part of what happened with Moffat is that things got, you know, grim and horror-y, and, uh, and I just, that's not what I'm looking for from Doctor Who. And uh, Night Terrors was a, a particularly strong example of that. I mean, when Moffat would come in, I mean, you know, before he ran it, and when he would write a show, and everyone would be like, thank God you're here, um, The Empty Child, which was kind of horror yeah. but that was but that was fantastic, but it, it, I don't know, when it just got to be the main thing, I sort of tuned out, and well, if you, Terrors is the one that... If you grump about early Fourth Doctor stuff, then I'm going to be a little unhappy with I haven't you. seen <laughs> any. I haven't seen any early whoa, Fourth Doctor whoa. stuff. Is okay, that worse? The, well, well, the... the I'll, yes! The early uh, Fourth Doctor stuff had some influences from, like, Hammer Horror. Oh, well, see, that's a different... Yeah. You know, like, the one with the werewolf with Tennant was fine. Okay. I just... I just... <laughs> uh, just he said fine. He we're didn't gonna say great. He just didn't say dig faster, man. Dig just, faster. Just have a just. You reach bottom and then come out. Dig just faster. just somebody do a hand sign and I'll just get up and walk out of the room. <laughs> um, so you guys, I think he's doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously, he's, I'm not. You know, he's. Uh, I'm not gonna. We're not gonna eject him from the podcast. No. Uh, but uh, for our final question for this round, yes. I'm going to ask you something that we ask all our guests, mm -hmm. or rather, I should say, we're going to ask all our guests. <laughs> we just came up with it the last time we recorded. If you were to choose one single rock star or rock band to appear on Doctor Who, Whoa. who would they be, and what kind of role will they play? And don't say David Bowie. <laughs> I can't say David Bowie anymore because this has to be something real. Oh well, let's uh, we'll qualify it. Yeah. Any time from 1963 to. Oh, I see. Okay, I can. I can. So if right. you want Bobby Darren on Doctor Who, David Bowie is the. Is so the... you probably you probably can't use uh, Buddy Holly. Okay. So right. I can't. No. <laughs> Little too early. Yeah. Yes. I think I think the distinction was that any any rock star who could have been on Doctor Who during the course of the broadcast. Okay. Exactly. History. Even during the wilderness years in the 90s. So I can't so I can't say David Bowie just cuz he's low hanging fruit basically. No, we talked too, about too David easy. Bowie. Oh, I see. A, a great deal. Well, it's, okay. it's assumed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. All right. Well, that's kind of that's that's tricky. Take uh, your time. Hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> Turn to the left. Turn to the right. <laughs> you know, maybe it's... Okay. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Iggy Pop. Just because I've always enjoyed... I've always, I have always enjoy it when he shows up in stuff. When he showed up in Star Trek, it was terrific. And he's I, got a less for life. Sort of thing. Yeah, well, as, as it were. Um, he was a Vorda on Deep Space Nine. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And yeah, and he, well, and as that, mm -hmm. he was in so much makeup that you could barely tell who... who uh, who he was, but still it was Iggy Pop's voice coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and it was unmistakable. And uh, and I think I think that would gel nicely with the kind of I don't know the fun of Doctor Who. I get that. I think he could play a Zarbi. Zarbi or the first Zarby. the first male regeneration of the Ronnie. That's nice. <laughs> oh wow. So did that help? Am I am I in slightly better graces? Well, we'll let you pass on to the next round. Fantastic. We'll see how I do.
Round three is the randomizer at which, uh, during which our uh, show is chosen randomly. Today I'm the randomizer, and I have chosen Invasion of the Dinosaurs, 1974, towards the end of uh, 3's tenure, uh, written by Malcolm Hulk and directed by Patty Russell, who was the first uh, female director of Doctor Who in the 1960s, and continued to direct it into the 1970s, 1974. So, we begin Invasion of the Dinosaurs with uh, Doctor Number 3 and his fairly new companion, Sarah Jane, uh, arriving at a park in London. They set out into the city and find that it is more or less completely abandoned, uh, seeking as to why this has happened, they are uh, arrested for looting and around the same time discover that uh, the city has been abandoned because of an invasion. Of what? Dinosaurs! No! no. <laughs> but it's interesting that they didn't want to give that away, and so the first episode is it's titled just called invasion. invasion. Yeah. So anyway, not to go through the whole thing piece by piece, but uh, Brigadier, the Brigadier is, of course, uh, on the scene, uh, dealing with the dinosaurs as best he can. After some trouble, uh, the Brigadier and the Doctor and Sarah Jane are all brought together. Um, the Doctor believes that this is being done on purpose by somebody who has some sort of uh, time travel machinery that they've invented, and so they go looking for the energy source. Um, again, skipping ahead, the energy source is uh, being controlled by a conspiracy of people, including members of the government and of the army and, a, uh, and the scientist who had invented the time travel, and what they mean to do is regress the entire world back in time apart from themselves. We regress the entire world back to a golden age where they will guide the world forward and avoid all of the pollution and the war and all that sort of thing of, uh, of the last several hundred years. Uh, in doing so, they have recruited a number of people um, who they have convinced are on a spaceship going to a new planet, but this new planet will in fact be the cleansed modern planet. Um, Sarah Jane is captured while they discover all this and put on the pretend spaceship, um, where she convinces them that it is in fact a pretend spaceship. And leading to a climactic confrontation between the people who had been hoodwinked by the uh, by the Golden Age uh, conspiracy uh, and the army and the brigadier and the doctor. Um, that about sum it up? That sums it up very well. Thank you kindly. So. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Plus dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, okay. So let, let's Hence start. the name. Should we yes. talk about let's the dinosaurs? dinosaurs. Yeah. Oh, this mm. story is famously trashed for the dinosaur special, special effects. effects are dismal. They the are special dismal. effects are garbage, yeah. And I will I will say that I, I haven't seen it since junior high. This is mm -hmm. my second viewing of this, and I had really bad opinions of this episode because it was a time in my life in which I was super into Doctor Who and was trying to convince my other junior high friends to watch Doctor Who. And I remember <laughs> bugging a bunch of people to watch Doctor Who and then tuning in the next week to this episode and being horrified by these dinosaurs, by the Doctor fighting a puppet pterodactyl with a mop and being like, oh. And so that's yeah. my main memory and I never even revisited it. Well, yeah, I mean, most of the dinosaurs just kind of stand in one place and squirm awkwardly. They're, they're not the most threatening dinosaurs no. I've ever seen. The, the, only the Tyrannosaurus ever really moves, and it does not do so by stepping. 
Um, <laughs> it just kind of slides along in a very slow and disagreeable way. So my understanding is that they hired a firm to do the dinosaurs that promised way more than they could deliver. <laughs> I think the initial idea was it was going to be a Ray Harryhausen sort of stop-motion dinosaur extravaganza, and... Everybody overpromised things, and then at the end, oh, this is what we got. Yeah. The, the point being that even at the time, they knew this was awful. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, yeah. this is, you know, at this point, the Godzilla movies have been showing in America for 20 years, and, you know, and they are... I think Land of the Lost premiered this at the same time, too, in the U.S. About had, that time, Which yeah. had better dinosaurs, better right. monsters. Yeah. And uh, Harry Hausen, of course, had been working for for yeah. twenty years, and uh, no better better special effects were uh, were common, and even such risible uh, the special effects in Godzilla are not as bad as their reputation, but of course they are routinely mocked and yeah. uh, and worth time. Um, but as much as you might care to mock the Godzilla special effects, way 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 better. Absolutely, than this. it's terrible. We can all agree about they that. They don't even really look like dinosaurs. They don't really. <laughs> The design is not the design is not terrible for the time. I mean, this well, yeah, is, I mean, the, the, the Tyrannosaurus isn't very the Tyrannosaurus is, is, he is looks very Tyrannosaurus. He looks elderly. They time scooped an old one. Yeah. His face is kind of, and even when he bites the Brontosaurus, it's, it's sort of weak. I can't tell if they're making out. Front of his face. Yeah. We have no idea what the lifespan of yeah. a dinosaur actually yeah. was. But it's interesting that they have these couple close-ups of the Tyrannosaurus, which is a totally different model and a far superior one. It's got the blinking eye, but the whole face is shaped more like what we recognize as a Tyrannosaurus Rex. The Tyrannosaurus Rex is, on a design level, ironically, given, of course, that it's the the most heavily used, is the worst. It has three fingers, which is wrong for a Tyrannosaurus Rex, which they knew at the time. And it's just just very lumpy and unpleasant. The other problems (laughs) with... It's also 30 feet tall, which is taller than anyone ever thought an actual Tyrannosaurus was. Um, All of the dinosaurs had dragging tails. All of them were fairly bloated. But the thing about it is that other than the other than the claws and the sort of incompetence of the uh, Tyrannosaurus, all of the dinosaurs, while hilariously wrong today, were about right at the time. This was before things really started to move in paleontology. Some seeds had been sown in the late 1960s of the more active vital sort of animals that we know them to be now, but the seeds had only just been sown and it wouldn't really start exploding until the 1980s. And so 1974 was still a time when dinosaurs were these huge, plodding animals that went extinct because they deserved it, um, because they were stupid and slow and ill-adapted to anything, um, which, of course, has gone by the wayside, but in 1974 was, in fact, the paleontological model. And so, as far as that's concerned, they did get it right. Um, they do go so far as to have an apatosaurus, which they call an apatosaurus. This is the yeah. whole... Yeah. This is the whole apatosaurus-brontosaurus thing. One thing that's strange about that is that they call an apatosaurus, and then in the very next episode, the doctor makes reference to a brontosaurus. And it's like, Come on! Come on! <laughs> you had it! You had it and you threw it away! Um, no, he, make, you know, he makes reference to the dinosaurs having gone extinct 65 million years ago, which is, of course, correct. I mean, everything that they say and do is technically correct, at, at least as far as the time is concerned. Um, it's a lot more accurate than the Silurian stuff. Yes, exactly. The Silurian mm-hmm. stuff I could go on and on about and won't like, at the moment, but... Um, they would, couldn't have come from the Silurian era. They couldn't, or the Eocene era. Or the Eocene. They just keep throwing darts and it never comes anywhere near. <laughs> um, but, it's almost like uh, it's science fiction. 
<laughs> Science dart throwing. It does bear, no, bear noting that all of the uh, all of the dinosaurs, with the, with the exception of the uh, the pterosaur, the sort of unidentified pterosaur that appears a couple times, that uh, what we see is a tyrannosaurus, a triceratops, a stegosaurus, and, a, and an apatosaurus. And a, I, I could mention that all of these are North American animals rather than European or English, but you know. Science fiction, as you say. I would like to say, read just this one half line from the novelization uh, when they first encounter the, the unidentified pterosaur uh, in the novelization. It is described as a pterodactyl, the flesh-eating flying reptile that was once the master species on Earth. Sounds right. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, especially as it appears in the show, which is like about the size of a, a cocker yeah. spaniel. Yeah, thing. it's a little, it's a little <laughs> ramphrocoid sort of thing. And uh, yeah, no, pterosaurs are my favorite prehistoric animal, which is saying quite a lot. But they were never the master species <laughs> on Earth. You get the sense that they're they di- the they're dialing in, the, in yeah. during the Third Doctor era, right? Yeah. Silurians, oh, that was way out. Uh, Eocenes, oh, that's not yeah, okay. Well, now they're trying to get something yeah. close to right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they do, the, you know, other than the Tyrannosaurus, they basically do the best they can under the circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's something the kids would recognize. Oh, sure. Because they Absolutely. would have been bananas for dinosaurs back then. Well, of Just, course. They didn't go into, like, the duck bills or the... Yeah, right. Or the... Or the Kids don't care about that. But this, <laughs> is, this is how it works in the yeah. 90s. You know, when Stegron reanimates skeletons from the American Museum of Natural History in Spider-Man, it's a Tyrannosaurus and a Triceratops and a Stegosaurus. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is these Deep are cut. these are the classics. Yeah. 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 But these dinosaurs and the effects have, for many, many, many years, sort of relegated this whole serial to like bottom of the barrel. I feel like it's more the effect. I mean the design, yeah. like I said, is fine for the time. It's just it's yeah. just the execution. Yeah. Well, but I think we should bracket that off. Yeah. Exactly. Because uh, to my mind, everything else is extremely good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a script by Malcolm Hulk, uh, who always delivers good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did the novelization of this too, mm-hmm. which you read that kind of silly line from. Yeah, earlier, but it's actually but quite good otherwise, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Maybe we can save this for later in our discussion about it, but he he was a notorious left-winger. Yeah. He was a communist, uh, as I remember, and so the left-wing ecology or radical environmentalist theme of Invasion of the Dinosaurs is right there at the top, mm-hmm. um, although coming from a left-wing writer, it has a little bit of self-parody about it, right? Sure. He's, clearly, he's clearly parodying radical environmentalists. It, honest to God, it comes off to me like environmentalists are the enemy, yeah, and I think that's... It's a, like, he, you know, he, he like got so communist that he kind of went around the bend. Yeah, but at the end, the doctor does does agree with them. He says they were, you know, that they were going too far, but that pollution is a very serious problem. Yeah, oh, yeah, well, there's quite that. a few points where the doctor says that he agrees with... Uh, yeah, he, he praises Sir Charles's book, Last Chance for Man, and he talks about uh, the absolute correctness of pollution destroying the earth. And this is 1973. It's right at the start of the modern ecological movement. So I think the the sympathy of the, of the, that the audience is going to have is clearly on the side of the doctor. But somewhere in Malcolm Hulk is I'm going to take uh, the most extreme parts of the left wing and I'm going to parody them and I'm going to see how they could be I guess, I guess I kind and, of took it yeah. as like uh, radical leftists of, of probably Malcolm Hulk's era didn't think in environmental terms very much. They were all, like, labor and industry. 
Well, there isn't much labor and industry in this, which is kind of interesting because there is in a lot of other 1970s John Pertwee stuff. In fact, The Monster of Peladon, which is just going to be, what, the next episode or two up from this, mm-hmm. is all about labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here, it's that's bracketed off completely. This is an ecological leftist yeah. story. It's also coming off of the Green Death. It's a very ecological, anti-pollution story. So in some ways, I think he's trying to revisit the same themes, but do it differently. I mean, the, the things that the, that the conspiracy, that the, that the Golden Age people do wrong is... Uh, they sort of run from the problem rather than try to address it as it exists. They they try to yeah. Go they to abandon the earth exactly. Yeah. But I do like. I mean, I've I have consumed a staggering amount of dinosaur-related entertainment, and much of the time, dinosaurs appear in a story because dinosaurs are awesome, and that's it. <laughs> Which I am so fine with, I can't even begin to express. But the fact that we have this conspiracy that's all about regression, that's all about going backwards, and they use dinosaurs as one of their tools, it actually uses dinosaurs thematically, which is something that I think is pretty great. It's also a pretty sophisticated script in that it presents a radical organization having different elements in it because it's clearly fairly Mm -hmm. new so you have the people who are like okay this person is going to have to be killed and there's a lot of other people who are like no 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 we're here not to kill people and it's that tenuous first steps of a radical organization where some people want to go to a certain degree and other people don't and I don't know that I've seen that portrayed in that, a lot of That has yeah. the ring of truth to it, yeah. and that's exactly how somebody like Malcolm Hulk would portray an organization yeah. like this. Yeah, yeah because no, that is uh, terrific. In, yeah, in the umbrella idea is that we all agree on this particular thing, but when you get down to brass tacks and you're trying to figure out tactics, then mm-hmm. you're going to have some people that you're in the organization with who have very disturbing ideas about how mm-hmm. you're going to do it. And and so Ruth is clearly a, um, right. a proto-fascist, oh, but Mark or whatever is an yeah. idealist. And, and even Adam, very... once he figures it out, mm-hmm. he is totally out. As well, you should be when you discover that the plan is to erase all humans <laughs> ever. Exist, except for you and your pals. Holy cow. Yeah. That's monstrous. Doesn't Sir Charles uh, have some little fig leaf over it? He says, well, it's not like they would ever have existed in the first right, place. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not like and we're he's killing so, He's so mellow about it, too. He keeps trying to get Sarah Jane to stay with the program. That's what's interesting, too. Yeah. These aren't bad guys who are going to kill you. You have yeah. almost yeah. A, a narrative reason for the padding and runaround because mm-hmm. they do have to just keep capturing them and not killing them because most of them in the organization right now don't want to kill people. They're they humanists. That They're all humanists. Towards the very end, after after Sir Charles and Sarah Jane have come to loggerheads a couple of times already in the story, towards the very end, he, he says to her, I hope we can be friends someday. Mm-hmm. And Are you insane? <laughs> <laughs> you monster! <laughs> Yeah, and, they, and, and even the people who then wake up yeah. um, in the quote-unquote spaceship, they're very normal people. They're, the one guy right. has that great line. He's like, I sold my house. <laughs> <laughs> All uh, kidding about the dinosaurs aside, I love this adventure. I think this oh. is terrific. I think yeah. it's extremely well written. Uh, it's very well directed. Dinosaurs accepted, but they did what they could. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not here to complain. It has lots of interesting narrative logic to it, which is not always a strength of Doctor Who. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a deductive logic to it, too. You, you understand why before the Doctor gets there, the Brigadier can't make any headway. Because he's, I mean, first he evacuated 8 million people 
8 million people <laughs> from London just to keep them safe or whatever. They did a cordon over it. They're tracking the dinosaurs. They're trying to you know, keep them contained in the central area. But it's only once the doctor gets there that he starts logically figuring out certain things. Uh, it, they need an energy source. Okay, where can they get an energy source? Uh, the dinosaurs are a distraction. They're, the power must be in London somewhere. So there's lots of cascading deductions mm -hmm. and uh, what's also neat about this era of Doctor Who is it's not just the Doctor doing it. Sarah Jane does possibly even more oh, yes. deducing than the Doctor does. Oh, Whitaker, I heard about this guy who was doing time travel stuff and I'll go and talk to this guy about this thing and this guy about mm -hmm. this thing. She has a very <laughs> the very bad luck to constantly go talk to guys in the conspiracy. <laughs> well, <laughs> everyone is. Okay, here's but everyone is, yes. You see, I did not Strike, that didn't strike me as Sarah Jane being smart. It struck me as Sarah Jane being dumb. Oh, really? It really did. Like, she talks to Sir Charles, and he literally says something along the lines of, well, I have some classified material I can show you. <laughs> and she's like, really? And I'm like, could you, could, it was just so, so obviously suspicious to me. And, um, However, she is a, a journalist. She's going to ask these people questions. They are in the middle of a dinosaur invasion. And so the idea of an MP maybe going, hey, we should look at some classified documents, isn't that far well, out. When you're in a dinosaur invasion. Yeah, okay. But, but I, uh, <laughs> I think this is like the, the third or fourth time I, I saw this. And I kind of, I, I think went to this effort not to focus on the crappy dinosaur effects so much this time, which mm -hmm. because it kind of overwhelms so much of it. So I was watching the other stuff, and I really honestly feel almost all the characters in this show come off as really dumb. Hmm. I, I think hmm. the Doctor even comes off as dumb. Whoa, in, whoa, in what whoa, place? Whoa. And that's unforgivable. <laughs> what place does he come up dumb? Uh, when Whitaker calls him on the phone and it's like, oh, I... I, I, meet me alone. Uh, meet me alone. I'll, I'll grant you <laughs> that. Come alone. He is and the like, worst actor. And, 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 then, and then the doctor's like, okay, sure. And then, and then, it, like a stegosaurus appears, and that like somehow is proof that the doctor's creating dinosaurs. Which okay. again, you have to be pretty stupid to just think. Just I don't know. I, wait, wait, I have one thing to say. This is one of those things where you have to look at this on different levels. On a script level, that's not a problem. It's a direction and actor problem because yeah. the guy who played Whitaker delivered, he didn't act, he still used a villainous monotone. Yeah. Which this is, by the way, the guy who's been in Doctor Who a bunch. He played. Um, it's Peter Miles. Peter Miles he played Niter. He's just his, yeah. like, hello, I'm alone. I've been captured. <laughs> he's just like, yeah. he's twirling his mustache. It, 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 it is, yeah. I mean, it's, but not, that, it's not a uh, script level Pertwee problem is, necessarily. Yeah. Pertwee is playing it like the script intended it. I, 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 I also I kind of find all the, all the the uh, golden agers on the ship. I thought they were all dumb because I just couldn't believe that was a convincing spaceship for anyone. It's nineteen seventy four. That's what I mean, like like, like the, you know, like there was no well, sense of motion or thrumming of. Well, most of them are asleep. Know. Okay. There's only three or four of them that are awake. And their pants are so tight that they can't possibly yeah, they can't be thinking think. straight. Yeah. <laughs> that, that explains the 70s. It, the pants it are is, too tight. It, the arc is interesting because it prefigures the arc in space from just a few years yeah. later, which mm -hmm. is a real arc that's sending people yeah. off to, um, to survive. I find that there's just tons of great character moments in this, which is true of all of John Pertwee's era, because they sure. have this long-running uh, relationship with all the unit people. And obviously, we're, we're running out of time for this round, but the Mike Yates 
oh, yeah. uh, thing. To try to put yourself in the mindset of watching this and not knowing that's going to happen, how shocking that, that must have is, been. That is frankly very tough to take. Even today, because yeah. Mike had been Richard Franklin had been a recurring character for almost four years mm -hmm. at this point. Uh, there's nothing in his backstory to indicate that there's, uh, he would be a traitor here. There's there's some nice foreshadowing because early in the episode two or something, he says to Sarah, "I like the clean air and the deserted mm -hmm. streets, and there's no no people." But I mean, what he's doing is condoning the genocide of the entire human race, and that's. There that's, are some well, subtle, that's pretty extreme, Mike. One thing, yeah. <laughs> and there, there's actually an ex, a little bit of explanation for it in the novel, um, where they say, um, which they don't say in the show, I don't think, where they say that after the last thing with the giant maggots, yeah, I'll go ahead and you. Death. Okay, yeah. that after that he had been put on an extended leave yeah, uh, yeah, because of the stresses leave. that he'd yeah. been through, and that on that leave was when he fell in. With yeah. the with the golden age people, yeah, and, and with it, the remembering room, there's there's a suggestion of programming. Yeah, it's well, not explicit. Yeah. 1970s and 1980s were big on brainwashing. Mm -hmm. That was a thing that you could do in fiction, well, and in newspaper articles about Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, we now think that that's probably not really something you can do to a human being in the same uh, in the same sort of way. But sure. here, okay, that's an out for Mike's character. I choose to. Take it because I've always liked Mike Yates, mm -hmm. and it's and clearly the showrunners did too. Barry Letts did too because they bring him in in uh, Planet of the Spiders just to a few episodes later him, to give yeah. him, give him a little bit of a redemptive arc. But it's kind of bitter to have him be, uh, be the traitor here. When he pulls that gun on all of them, it's quite shocking. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's a little surprising that they choose to reveal it in episode two when he goes to visit mm -hmm. Whitaker. Like, so yeah. the audience knows about Mike's treachery before anyone else does. So yeah. they could they they chose not to have a shocking moment for the characters and the audience at the same time. They yeah. chose to do it for the audience. I'll go ahead and say that I had no idea who this guy was. I, I'm sure. And, sure, you're a casual uh, heroine. Uh, indeed, and uh, and. Um, he was still just in, you know, the episode and a half before we learn about his thing is played charmingly and nicely enough that, that, that I also disliked it. Nowhere near as much as you. Um, but it was, it was bad yeah. news even, even to, to, a, to a new person, which just speaks to, a, speaks to how well that character's played. So I, do, I do have two things I just want to add. One, this is one of the comparatively few uh, original series stories I can think of that seem to have real vivid real world consequences. Mm -hmm. You know, London is evacuated. Yeah, sure. You know, Those people are going to remember are that. Eerie, very eerie. Yeah, 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 it is genuinely eerie. Um, and and secondly, the Who-mobile. <laughs> uh, which it, this is the debut of the Who-mobile and you see it for maybe 30 seconds. Cuz he said he needs something fast and then yeah. it goes really slow. <laughs> <laughs> and you only see it like one more time or something and then it's like, okay, that's it for the Who-mobile. I believe in the novelization he just rides a motorbike. He does, in fact, yes. Yeah. That is true. Because Malcolm Hogg's like, screw that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I heard something to the effect that like Pertwee kind of muscled in the Who-mobile because he liked having the doctor have like Bondian mm -hmm. gadgets and stuff. I think he got the production staff to 
Wampler. Pay for it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. To, yeah. That's what? why the dinosaurs were so crappy. They spent all the money on the <laughs> So we should probably wrap it up, but there, uh, a few final thoughts. Uh, let's all wrap up our ideas about Invasion of the Dinosaurs. I want to do a quick little call out to all of the wonderful other Doctor Who actors that are in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Uh, Josh talked about Peter Miles, who plays Whitaker. He's also in the Silurians. Uh, and he's Niter in Genesis of the Daleks. But Martin Jarvis, the other scientist, is in Vengeance on Veros, who we've talked about in this podcast, and he's also in Jubilee, which we've talked about as well. John Bennett, who plays General Finch, is Li Shen Chang in Talons of Wang Chiang, and unfortunate racist makeup. Uh, but he's also in a million other TV roles. Um, what else? Uh, Pertwee here, you can, you can tell that he is kind of worn out. He's kind of run down. He's been doing this for almost five years at this point, and especially those first couple episodes. Really, I thought he was really. Old. I thought he was really strong in he this. Perked I found up. him. He perked great. up after that. There's a funny moment uh, with him when the brigadier tells him that Sarah has gone off in the car with the general, and he does this eyebrow raise and goes, "Oh!" <laughs> 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 Clearly, Bert be having a little fun. See if he slipped that into the family-friendly show. Uh. Invasion of the Dinosaurs is one of, I believe, four Doctor Who stories ever that has dinosaurs in it, which to me is mind-boggling. <laughs> this is a show that's run for over 50 years that is basically about time travel, and you never have any dinosaurs in it, and that makes me crazy. Um, <laughs> what's that? The other three. The other three would be the dinosaur that appears in and the Silurians, their their pet dinosaur, mm -hmm. uh, dinosaurs on a spaceship, of course, and the big stupid dinosaur that appears in the first uh, Capaldi episode. So. You know, I'll take when I, I'll take it when I can get it. Uh, it's a it's a shame that they're 1974 dinosaurs, and it's a shame that the uh, that the special effects are so bad. But uh, but Hulk obviously, you know, Hulk invented the Silurians and all that, and uh, and he obviously likes them. There are two places in the novel where the perspective shifts, and you hear about events from the point of view of one of the dinosaurs, <laughs> which I think is just terrific. <laughs> Period, and that which I also think is kind of indicative of how uh, Malcolm Hulk approaches these sorts of things. You know, his whole thing with the Silurians was that they were some other guys with a perfectly reasonable point of view. So Hulk is always a guy who is ready to be on the side of the putative monsters, and that's one of my favorite things about him. Uh, I think Benton comes off pretty well in the story. <laughs> he kicks ass. He kicks. Benton kicks some ass. Uh, however, uh, in the larger scale of things, I think there's better Pertwee stories you can watch and better Malcolm Hulk stories you can watch. Oh, really? I, I do think so. I like it so much better. Yeah, I hate Junior High Me for being so dismissive of this story. <laughs> I am so happy I rewatched it, and I, I originally intended to serialize it over a couple nights, and I sat down and watched it, and I watched all six parts. I just yeah. couldn't stop. Well, for all the reasons we've already said, particularly, I think, Hulk's examination, again, of this radical group that has the same ideals but are willing to do things in different ways I think is very sophisticated for Doctor Who and honestly sophisticated for a lot of mainstream TV today. You can't oh, yeah. even portray things that... In fact, it's a spread of different tactics. Yeah. You've got the Doctor on one end and wipe out the entire human race on the other and, and a whole bunch of people so many versions in between. Yeah. And my last thing I want to say is it has one of my favorite Doctor Who cliffhangers uh, is the whole reveal when Sarah Jane wakes up in that moment where you think she might actually be on a spaceship. Because I didn't remember the story 
at all. So I was really like, what are they doing? <laughs> it's great. Final thoughts. I, I, I want to, for our viewers, I want one question and one challenge. The question is, is this the first time that anyone in Doctor Who has crawled through a ventilation shaft? <laughs> I can't remember an earlier occasion, but Sarah does it here. And the challenge is I want somebody to write a sequel that concerns Ruth and the other disillusioned fake colonists ah. years later as they start <laughs> developing resentful plans of their own, right? Because <laughs> you think about all these like former Manson family oh, yeah. people or whatever, and they're like, what happens in their lives later on? This could be a wonderful, like, a John Updike sort of novel <laughs> about these characters. I, I, I definitely want to hear about Mark and Ruth and Adam and the rest of these guys. If you guys don't write it, listeners... I'll write it. I promise you. <laughs> now round four, special topics, Dalek, in which uh, our guest, Matt Kesson, is going to surprise us with a special topic. Matt? You've covered Doctor Who and role-playing games before. Um, you did so by discussing the actual role-playing games and also this whole retconning Doctor Who as a role-playing game thing. What I would like to do is go from the Doctor Who role-playing games thing in another direction, which is this. You're in, you're playing a Doctor Who role-playing game. You are not any character from the series. No one's the Doctor, no one's the Brigadier, no one's any of the Companions. You're making up new characters, but you're making up new characters in the entire giant toy box of Doctor Who canon. What's your guy? Off the top of my head, mm -hmm. I would like to be one of the random, like, thug villains of, like, a hired hand of Tobias Vaughn or from the invasion <laughs> or something oh, yeah. who, who is now repented and I'm like, oh, well, you know, I was, you know, I was a poor guy from, from East London and I, I signed up for this paramilitary force and then I realized that, Oh, I, I guess uh, I'm on the side of people who are going to exterminate the entire human race. And I don't, I don't like that very much. And so after the Doctor saves the world, that would be an interesting character, I think, to play. Because you're still fundamentally kind of selfish or villainous at heart. Sure. But yeah, now you have an altruistic element layered over that because oh god there are things out there that are bigger than than just making a paycheck nice the first thing that comes to my mind and i don't know why exactly but one of the uh one of the survivors of the dalek invasion of earth oh you've been playing a lot of fallout 4 haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I i i have yet to play fallout 4 but i i i have played a lot of fallout 3 and fallout new vegas and I really enjoyed those games. So, yeah, I, you know, someone who, who's like had to kind of fight to survive and is, you know, kind of a, you know, an anti-Dalek rebel. Knows technology, is familiar with it, doesn't have access to any of it. <laughs> cool. I'm going to go with a half-human, half-monstrous offspring of the Borad and the Garrison. <laughs> Kind of bringing together this whole Loch Ness monster uh, discontinuity that we have uh, from Time Lash and Terror of the Zygons. You're gonna min max. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's gonna be a half elf paladin mage. Yep, I'm gonna, gonna be a Loch Ness monster yeah. slash Loch Ness monster. Yeah, 
I cannot you, picture the Borat and the Saracen mating. Would it be big like Saracen? <laughs> <laughs> and I have fan fiction to prove it. Would the offspring be big like the Saracen or small like the Borad? I would think big. Well, part big and part small, of course. So, so it had like Borad head, big Borad head, head and little Saracen body, and um, yeah, still have a sustaining milk for Zygon somewhere in there. Um, so he would uh, would he be a Doctor Who companion, or would he be like a, a friendly that he visits on Earth? I think he'd be a friend, someone that the Doctor goes to for advice. What kind of adventures would he milk? go on? <laughs> Would it be in the lake, or like in the small like Scottish it, it, towns by the lake? Just in disguise, he would go into the go to the pubs in disguise, wearing okay. big, wearing a hoodie. Do you think they all kind of know? Hoodie. They all kind of know who he is, but yes. they just won't talk about it with outsiders. <laughs> yeah, when people come in, it's like, oh my god, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh sure, it's just Fergus over there, encephalitis. <laughs> uh, well, excellent. Very, very good. Do I, do, I also, do I also answer, or uh, how does this work? Is it going to be a lady ice warrior? No! Because I like that idea. <laughs> I would be a Silurian, of course. Of course. Yeah. Madame Vastra. No. No, yeah. Mr. Vastra. Mr. Vastra. Lord Vastra. The divorced yeah. husband of Madame Vastra. <laughs> it would be a domestic drama where you're always trying to get together, but there are lots of oh, yeah. hilarious misunderstandings. Silurian yep. place. <laughs> Exactly. Jurassic Abbey. <laughs> You've read my mind. Uh, Remember this terrible war going on? I shall have to take ownership of Salonian at least. <laughs> Get me more tea. <laughs> All right, so I'm Tony Carna. I am the sound engineer on this podcast. And just because we wanted a nice compact topic for the Death Zone today, we are going to discuss Doctor Who versus Star Trek versus Star Wars. So, starting off with Kelvin. I am going to go with Star Trek. Star Wars. Can't decide between Star Trek and Doctor Who. I'm going to surprise no one by saying Doctor Who. <laughs> well, I think I'm going to say Star Trek. Oh, I'm in the corner here. All right. There are a lot of people on the wrong podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now that we've all established our opening bids, I think we need to give some reasons and a quick go around the table. So who's up first? Well, I think a lot of it for me is that I can literally not remember any period of my life in which I was not a Star Trek fan. It was around since I was at all conscious of what a TV even was. I'm old enough that I can remember the, the period before Star Wars when Star Trek was the only thing there was. And yes, technically Doctor Who was around, but not in America. So it was just Star Trek was always around, and it was always um, well reasonably sensible people to being good at their jobs, which I, I consider to be uh, distinct from kicking people's asses. Uh, and, you know, alien cultures that were distinct and around, whereas in Star Wars they're just very weird-looking things that act totally like humans, and uh, in Doctor Who they tended to be just sort of angry fascists of some stripe or other, and, and there was never a whole lot of, you know, cultural differences you had to kind of work through and, and come to some kind of understanding of, and I always liked that kind of social science end of, of, of science fiction. Um, so, yeah, Star Trek. 
Uh, well, I had a different choice, but for fairly similar reasons to Kelvin, which is that Star Wars came first for me. Um, I cried all day when Leonard Nimoy died. I have had my photo take... Don't you laugh at that! <laughs> no, I, I, it was a laugh of, 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 of sympathetic recognition. <laughs> um, I've had my photo taken with with Catelyn Blackwood and and Sophie Aldred. You know, I am very much into all three of these franchises, um, and they're all they all do different things. They yeah. all do very different things, um, which is why it's easy to be into all three of these franchises. And, and I will admit that Star Wars is the least intelligent of the three, but uh, but it came. First, it came first in a big way. It was formative for me, and that's really all there is to it. I can say other good things about Star Wars, but I but the reason I picked it is because I was four when it came out, <laughs> and I didn't see the others until much later, and that's the reason. Well, I I, I was also four when it came out, mm. and I was into Star Star Wars as a kid, and I loved it. And then, then I got into Doctor Who when it started being shown on public television. And then later, when my mom married my stepdad and he was into Star Trek, then later I got into Star Trek. So that was my trajectory. Um, so for a while there in my life, it was all kind of the same thing. You know, I was just a kid that liked science fiction. When things started to discriminate for me, I started to pull those things apart a little bit. And I think maybe the best articulation of why I'm not so hot on Star Wars anymore, and I do still like it, you know, don't get me wrong, none of these things, none of these are things that I hate. But when you look at kind of the DNA of the stories, Star Wars, there's a a well-known article by David Brin that appeared in Salon in 1999 that was talking about Star Wars versus Star Trek. And the conclusion was essentially things like, well, Star Wars says that elites have an inherent right to arbitrary rule, that good elites should act on their subjective whims without evidence, argument, or accountability. I'm quoting here. Any amount of sin can be forgiven if you're important enough. True leaders are born. It's genetic. The right to rule is inherited and justified human emotions can turn a good person evil, mm-hmm. uh, which clearly we can expand on if we want to talk about the, the, the logic of Star Wars, but these are things that are not at the heart of Star Trek, mm-hmm. which is essentially about a functional, semi-utopian, liberal, democratic society. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Star Trek, especially Next Generation or whatever, can be a little bit didactic and earnest in its liberal democracy. But I'm a liberal Democrat, and so I'm sympathetic to that kind of thing. Where Doctor Who fits into that is a little bit odd, because it doesn't have really political DNA in it so much because it doesn't have an overriding George Lucas figure or a Gene Roddenberry figure to say, this is what Doctor Who's political opinions are. And so it's a kind of more kind of sloppy emotional thing where do I like it at this particular time? Do I not like it at this other particular time? And that's simultaneously what I admire about it because it's very hard to pin down and what I kind of resist because... What is it, exactly? At least Star Trek, which I love, I know what it is, and I know um, I know what its point of view is. And that's why I can't decide. Star Wars is the first science fiction that I ever watched, and I was six when it came out. And so, loved Star Wars, like most people my age, super obsessed with Star Wars. Star Wars action, or Star Wars everything. And Star Wars is what led me to seek out Star Trek on television, because Star Wars was just this movie that had 
been aired, and I didn't even know there was going to be a second one, but I wanted some spaceships and some aliens and something that looked like Star Wars, and so I watched Star Trek, and I loved the classic Star Trek as a kid. Um, and then the other Star Wars movies came out, but then they stopped, and I kept thinking there was going to be a fourth Star Wars movie, but then there were the Star Trek <laughs> movies, and uh, I loved the Star Trek movies. And so those two uh, franchises really primed me to be a science fiction television or movie fan, and what got me into Doctor Who. But what those two franchises didn't have that Doctor Who had was this quantity of material. Because one of my frustrations as a kid is that there's just a handful of movies or a couple seasons of reruns of Star Trek, and Doctor Who sucked me in for just its imagination that comes from so many different minds. It's not a single creator-driven thing. Also, with Star Trek... Sorry, guys, that comes like bottom of the barrel for me of these three because it runs completely on the charisma and performances of the three leads of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy and the chemistry those actors had together. I'm not a huge fan of so much of Star Trek after that. Even as a kid, I couldn't really get into Next Generation. So to me, the political side of it is pretty limp and not very intriguing to me and kind of silly and contradicts itself. Whereas Doctor Who contradicts itself because it's so many voices. To me, it is just, it's kind of like imagination incarnate. It is like, and it, it, it is crap and it is brilliant. It is everything contained in one franchise that I just, there's nothing else like it, which is the reason I'm doing a podcast about it. Cause I would, I would come to the end of being able to talk about Star Wars and Star Trek as much as I like them in differing ways. But I, I feel I will never come to the end of consuming Doctor Who related product, let alone <laughs> talking about it. Well, I kind of jumped onto the, the Star Trek position almost without thinking, because as you guys were talking about it, I started thinking about, oh, God, that means I have to defend Enterprise. But I'm not going to do that, because, and I think, I think Kesson, you said something about classic Star Trek and the movies being the core of Star Trek for me. And I, I think what I like about Star Trek, upon actually thinking about my answer, is... The character stuff. I really, I mean, you you were complaining about the the the, the Kirk, Spock, McCoy being the only core of Star Trek, and I think for me, it's not the only core, but it's part of what I love about Star Trek. And it's not just them. It's like I love, I love Uhura and and Sulu and Chekhov and all the other characters, and it's it's part of what I like about John Pertwee era Doctor Who in particular is that. It's not so much about the just popping in and out of random planets and dimensions and times and all this. There's a set core of characters and personalities that are put into different situations from planet to planet. And it's a wider cast. And it's also kind of what I like about the Peter Davison era that other people will complain about, of having so many people in the TARDIS. It can be very unwieldy in the Doctor Who structure because the Doctor Who structure is set up to be so much about the Doctor and a companion or two going in and out of these situations and having a bunch of companions in the TARDIS gets hard to deal with. But Star Trek does such a good job of that that I really enjoy that. I I enjoy ensemble shows, I think. And that's part of what Star Trek really, really gets me with. And DS9 and good episodes of the various other series really take advantage of that. You get to see character development and character arc and plot arc that is harder to do in Doctor Who. The more recent Doctor Who has been doing that. 
but it's still hard to do with the the Doctor Who structure. And it's not that I don't like Doctor Who or, or Star Wars. I love those too. It's like Star Wars is great because it's space opera. It's all very big and melodramatic and grand and all that, and it's a lot of fun. And Doctor Who has a lot of wonderful stuff about it. I mean, the, the, oddly enough, the thing that for me sums up a lot of what I love about Doctor Who is a Craig Ferguson sketch yeah. on The Late Show where the episode that he had Matt Smith as a guest, they did uh, they did a musical opening with a few people who he's had do other musical openings with. And basically they, they, they did a, a song and dance number making up lyrics to the Doctor Who theme. And there's a line in there about uh, the Doctor Who is the, uh, what is it, the triumph of intellect and romance over brute force and cynicism. Yeah. And that's, that's the best of Doctor Who. Yeah. And there's a lot of that in Star Trek. I mean, there's a lot of phaser battles and all that, but just that core of, of that concept is, is a really, really nice thing in Star Trek that I appreciate a lot. I want to echo something that you said uh, better than I did earlier, which is that Star Trek, I think, articulates the concept of storytelling via a team, there's a team of people that all have their own specialities and their capabilities versus the idea of a hero. And Star Wars is very much about heroes. And Doctor Who is fundamentally kind of it, yeah. fundamentally about a hero, too. The Doctor is the, the most competent one, even in the new series where they have companions that are comparatively competent compared to the old series. It's not a team show the way that uh, Star Trek is. Okay, Kirk, whatever, was the big hero of the original show, but it is fundamentally a kind of democratic thing, like David Brin says in his article. There are people of competence working together to solve a problem. And for me, that's fundamentally so much more like the world actually works than that there's one person oh, yeah. who comes in and I'm going to be a Luke Skywalker to your problem. But and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solve it. Ironically, though I, though I agree with what you're saying, that I, that I think the actual con- construction of uh, Star Trek, the, the, the world and the politics of Star Trek and of Doctor Who are better ones than uh, than that of Star Wars. I mean, I, I agree with everything that's that that you said about about uh, you know the sort of divine right of kings stuff that happens in Star Wars. That's bad news. Um, and Star Trek and Doctor Who provide better answers than that. But at the same time, what you said about you know heroes and all that sort of thing, while not reasonable, not not realistic, is part of what I like about Star Wars. Star Wars is catharsis. I know it's mm-hmm. politically wrong, and I'm capable of agreeing with its political wrongness while still getting the catharsis of... And too much has been said about Star Wars and mythology. Um, and I do not want to add to that. But the reason that too much has been said is because there's something there. Um, there's a mythological quality to Star Wars. There's good and evil. There's monsters. There's descents into underworlds and all of that kind of thing. And uh, to a degree that you do not find in uh, Star Trek or Doctor Who. And I think that the mythologizing that Star Wars does to a greater degree than the other two is part of why I have selected it. I think even with all the, the, the wars and stuff that, that are that is in Star Trek, it's still ultimately like the most hopeful view of the future. Um, Thus the most unrealistic? 
I mean, uh, it, it, it gets a little weird when you're discussing the future as depicted in Doctor Who because it literally encompasses billions of years. Uh, you know, the, the great stuff about Star Wars is just how simple it is. Uh, okay, this is going to be a weird thing to say, but it's like when Star Wars started trying to introduce ideas. <laughs> Is when it really <laughs> fell apart. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I, because I, 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 I kind of. There were never any ideas. You know, like, like in the prequels, I think it was sort of George Lucas was trying to do something that was a little more idea based or something. It was but, idea based. It was just really awful. There were awful ideas. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. You know, picking between these three is very strange. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a strange debate to have, and it's kind of. Yeah, I've said yeah, that about I get for Clem. Well, what I will say one last thing about Doctor Who, because it's a Doctor Who podcast, you jerks. Uh, <laughs> to your thought about hero fiction. My thought? Yes, your idea of hero fiction. I mean, hero fiction is meant as escapism. And it is, I think, to a certain extent, what inspires us to be the best we can be to work in a group in real life. In that way, I think it is ultimately more satisfying than Star Trek, which when it tries to be so democratic, the narrative engine falls apart, like in Star Trek The Next Generation, where there's no conflict, and everyone has a part to play, and they all hold hands, and it sort of derails really quickly. It's at its most interesting... That's an appalling caricature yes. of Next Generation. <laughs> okay. It's if extremely you can bad. two and a half it's seasons kind of, of Next Generation, it's, it's, you can not, get it's, to. Not, it's not untrue of the first season yeah. of Next Generation. But Star Trek is yeah, at its best when it contradicts its core values. It's true. <laughs> it really, yeah, truly Deep is. Deep, Deep Space Nine rolls Deep Space up its sleeves to contradict its whole The original core Star Trek. always amazing. Yeah, so like I have a hard can, time yeah. arguing against, for Star Trek on this humanist basis because that when it is at its dullest. Um, Doctor Who I find interesting, again, because it is more representative of the real world. At any given time, Doctor Who, depending who's writing it, producing it, starring in it, it is liberal, it can be conservative, it can be libertarian, it can be socialist, it can be anything. Sure. You can find elements of that everywhere in it. And so it is a far more interesting show to dig into. It is a schizophrenic show in that way. Mm. Um, it is incoherent in that way. But I just find that to be the biggest appeal to me. As it happens, uh, the novelization of Invasion of the Dinosaurs has an introduction by Harlan Ellison in which he speaks about how much he loves Doctor Who. And I would like to quote from it uh, very briefly here. Hating Star Wars and Star Trek is not a difficult chore for me. I recoil from that sophomoric species of creation that excuses its simplistic cliché structure and homage to the transitory, as does Star Wars, as violently as I do from that which sententiously purports to be deep and intellectual when it is, in fact, superficial, self-conscious twaddle, as does Star Trek. Harlan Ellison, ladies and gentlemen. The Using the purple ink in his pen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I the great say... diplomat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want All a right. diplomatic show like Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, like many of us, I'm sure that was the first Harlan Ellison that we mm-hmm. ever read. That was, yeah. that was, it set the tone for later Harlan Ellison stories and essays that, and of course, I've read many of them over the years. Now, that's probably true. Yeah, for Harlan, probably his and, opinion. Yeah, and like, well, <laughs> I would say there's a lot of truth in what he's saying, but he's talking about first original series Star he Trek, yeah. and he had a 
difficult relationship yeah. with uh, Gene Roddenberry. Exactly. And, and so, a lot of people. As did many people. Um, and but, only the first Star Wars movie. Yes. Relevant to Yeah, and, and he's writing a particularly didactic introduction to a series of Doctor Who novels. So I don't necessarily Which disagree. Which the American public was totally not very familiar with at the time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's a political agenda to all those things. Yeah. So it shouldn't ever be taken as the last word of anything that oh, he's going so. to say. However, it is freaking hilarious. Well, absolutely. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the only reason I read it. Yeah. But guys, this, this is the death zone. We do so need to we wrap need, it up. I just want to... have to, a victor. I, I think you know, you've terribly caricatured <laughs> Star Trek. Is well, why don't you start so a Star Trek <laughs> podcast? It's <laughs> awful, right? It's, uh, yeah, the, the point being that... If, if fiction should be about anything, uh, well, it can be about many things. I understand that. Yeah. But Star Trek is self-consciously uh, about the idea of let's try to make the future better. Uh-huh. And so its model for making the future better is to have a number of competent people in different uh-huh. roles, which, okay, it's based on military roles, uh-huh. it's uh, based on the Navy or whatever. That that kind of hierarchical structure is not necessarily something we want yeah. for the future. Yes. Um, but really all we're interested in is the captain I, and the other character who's maybe an android or a Vulcan. No, 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 no. no you have, the other guys take up a lot of time that you're not interested in. You fast forward no, through. Like America, we take uh, bigger roles for different uh, people as different Star Treks uh, pop up. So mm-hmm. there are doctors, androids. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, just roles expand not only for racial types and gender types, but also for roles that they fill. And that seems to me like a liberal idea of democracy going forward. It's, it's always imperfect. But it's the idea that we're all working to get together and we're going to somehow overcome, uh, overcome adversity. And not only that, but that the problems in Next Generation and Voyager and things like that are things that are legitimate problems, like real people could disagree with. Like, sure. oh, I think we should do this thing because I think that's the, the right way to do it and I don't think that's appropriate. Whereas problems in Star Wars, you're an evil person. Mm-hmm. And I'm not an evil person. That is problematic, though. It is. It is. <laughs> yes. But it's not something you could argue about. It's yes. something you have to fight with lightsabers about. Yes. Right. And Which is a lot more interesting than a discussion with Dr. Crusher and, right. and Picard. Therefore, you get to fight with lightsabers. I think you're, yeah. Both of our arguments are nested within yours. <laughs> Well, uh, as you say, I, I... I was trying to sway Pat to my side and clearly... <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, okay, Doctor Who has the, this too. Uh, mm-hmm. They try to do moral arguments, especially mm-hmm. in the new series. They're usually weighted on one side or the yeah. other, just like Star Trek is. Yes. But they don't generally rationally discuss them. They don't have an argument for one side or the other, because one side is just a straw man argument. We were just talking about how Invasion of the Dinosaurs, I mean, certainly there are villains in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, but we were just talking about how there were a lot of people on a spectrum in between. Um, they were, but they were, del- well, they were deluded. There were genocidal people on one side. For sure. No, the no, doctor on the there other. were certainly yeah, villains, yeah. but there were, yeah. people, there were people who were on the villain side who were not bad people. And they had to come away from the villain side. It was, there's, I mean, there is a binary, but, it's, but still some level of gray in between. Yeah, it's not like Doctor Who can't do it. It's, right. But the, for Star Trek, that's the point of, sure. of it. Unless they're the Borg. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
even then you have Seven of Nine, who was he, even then the abducted. board got weirdly human yes. Yes. after a while. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I mean when, that, that that was one thing with Star Trek was that like you know the the whole let's make the future better. After a certain point, it's it, there's only so much better it can get. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, when, when um, humanism fails to get ratings, let's put a woman in a skin tight suit. <laughs> <laughs> Deep Space Nine, even before what's his name from um, Battlestar Galactica took over, was still really good at post-colonial stuff. Sure. They had the uh, the Car Cardassian, not yeah. the Kim Kardashians, the the, the Cardassians <laughs> uh, yes. and the Bajorans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was uh, they had they had ruled Bajor, and then yeah. they were going away, and so there was lots of strange gray area stuff yeah. with I terrorists. Will, I will concede and, and totally agree with you. Deep Space Nine is the best new, the new. Star Trek series. Here. I also agree. It's certainly out, the most politically complex. Yes. But again, because it abandoned some of that humanist mandate and yeah. sort of explores oh, things from It's not a humanist mandate. It's, it's still fundamentally areas. optimistic. It's just that it explores the complexities of those things in a more sophisticated way than some of the earlier shows had, right? It's still like we can all do this. Yeah. It's not like there are unresolvable but things. But in all fairness, Gene Roddenberry always equated... always Star Wars. Yes, he equated humanism with no conflict, though. The, the eventual end result of humanism, we'll, we'll say, is, is, is a conflict-free He had a Cold War... And that's War. how he equated... The two. He had an American Cold War view of what a utopia would look like. Guys, I think Pat and I just yeah. started a podcast. <laughs> a spin-off. I, like, I feel like neither Star Trek nor uh, Doctor Who has any Star Destroyers in it. <laughs> or There's some big-ass ships. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I, admittedly, I've never watched... Uh, Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> I've been bluffing all this time. I've been bluffing all this time. But like, like, improv. It's all improv. I've never really watched a lot, any Star Wars television, like, uh, oh, Clone like, Wars cartoons yeah. and things yeah. like some that. Some of that is actually real I've good. heard some of it's Clone Wars are pretty damn good. But uh, I think you could possibly scale Star Wars back into a TV episodic sort of thing pretty well because it is kind of just a giant movie serial. Whereas Star Trek, I think, has had, had definitely had some trouble expanding into a big screen kind of thing. I think I think Star Trek really is is a TV show to the bone. Really, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I don't, like when you when so we, Wrath we, of Khan. Well, there, there's there's the good there's good Star Wars movies. movies. I mean, there's good Star Trek movies, but but mm -hmm. you know, like when you when you, when you start making a movie out of it, you you don't really have anywhere much to go except you know Horatio Hornblower in space. Yeah, you know, it's naval big naval. Battle stuff in space. That's kind of where it has to go, and and because you can't have like people trying to sort of sensibly work out problems in a movie format very well. Yeah. Uh, and why would you want to? Because that's what Star Trek is good at. Yeah. Is that doing a different sort of moral problem every week and doing yeah. it in a short format and moving on to the next thing. Right. Yeah. Well, guys, it's kind of a surprise this degenerated into a big argument. Weird, yeah. <laughs> You'd think this would have been an easy, quick consensus. <laughs> Everybody knows. But still, we got to see if anyone's opinion has been swayed, and we have to take a vote and come up with a final victor in this death zone, even if it undermines our entire year of podcasting. <laughs> That's fine, guys. Go ahead. <laughs> we can have interests outside of Doctor Yeah. Who's I mean, you can be real. <laughs> You could be super. Yeah. You could be super into Doctor Who and other things. It's not. Right. All right, we're gonna go around and start with you, Tony. I'm sticking with Star Trek. Despite having its most recent offerings be the weakest of the three items discussed, I'm still gonna go with Star Trek. I'm still gonna go with 
Star Wars. Everything that you've said about the other the other ones is true, but <laughs> I uh, I react well to mythology. Star Wars is admittedly the only one of these three that has ever made me squee. Yeah. It's, mm. That that emotional punch really is what Star Wars has the most of. Right. I mean, I'm kind of serious when I say that neither Star Trek nor Doctor Who has a Star Destroyer in it. You know? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's yeah. basically what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if you guys noticed, but a few minutes ago I was split into two different people by a transporter. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the emotional Pat Harrigan is saying Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And the rational Pat Harrigan is saying Star Trek. Okay, and, so uh, we're, we're going to be locked in eternal combat <laughs> oh my in that corridor between the two universes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. What, what, if, what if I rubbed your back or something? An emotional Pat Harrigan come to the forefront. So are you abstaining? You got to vote. It's the death zone. How many times have you, you said, vote guys, it's the death zone? But you there's two of me. No, there no, aren't. No. I'm looking right at you. No, you, you got to vote. You know what my vote is. I'll just say it. Doctor Who. Wow, okay. Kill one of your children, Pat. I think Do Pat it. should vote for Doctor Who because that will bring balance to the force. <laughs> and I'll just, I'll just skulk off in the corner. <laughs> Can we check back with you? Yes, I think we'll have to return to this subject. <laughs> oh, no! no later, death zone. Here All it means is you abstain and Star Trek wins. No, All I'm right. not going to be here again. I want, I want an answer. That's fine. We don't need you. <laughs> oh. well, you were voting for Star Wars oh, anyway, right? I know, but yes. I'm not going to be here again, uh, nevertheless. <laughs> All right, listeners, either Star Trek wins or there's a tie between Star Trek and Doctor Who, depending on the cosmic grappling between emotional Pat and intellectual Pat. Tune in tune in to the next to get off. When one of, of us road. wins, <laughs> we'll <laughs> let you know. Okay, that just about wraps it up for uh, another episode of Get Off My World. But first, let's just take a little peek here at what the old randomizers got for next time. And it's the War Machines. First Doctor story uh, at uh, the exit of Dodo and the entrance of Ben and Polly. Nice. That's going to be an interesting one. Okay. And uh, we'd like to thank, again, our, our wonderful and erudite uh, guest, Matt Kesson. Thanks uh, for having wonderful me. Wonderful having you on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally great having you. Yeah, th- yeah thanks a lot. It was really fun. <laughs> yes, this has been the sarcasm hour. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> uh, and uh, next time, uh, in addition to the War Machines, we'll also be introducing a yet another new segment, Arcs of Infinity. And in that, we will be discussing the Big Finish audio story, Only the Monstrous, uh, which features the War Doctor, uh, none other than John Hurt. Sir. Sir John Hurt. (laughs) And that's going to be a a heck of a discussion, too. And uh, I will also, uh, universe willing, (laughs) have done uh, a fun little sketch involving uh, the second Doctor. Mm. Mm. We'll decide what's fun. Coming. Yes. <laughs> the public will decide, and as they always do. And uh, I have been Kelvin. I have been Matt. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. I'm Tony. And we're all saying... Get off my world!
want to be a cybermat <laughs> who was elected to parliament. 